Hello and welcome to this special bonus episode of The Dairy Edge. With the current lockdown restrictions in place, Chagas are running a weekly Let's Talk Dairy webinar series, which is also being made available afterwards as a podcast. On last week's webinar, Stuart Childs spoke to Patrick Forrestal about protected urea and Emer Kennedy about weaning calves. Welcome along, everyone. Um, today is the start of an eight-week series of webinars called Let's Talk Dairy that we're going to do uh, in response to COVID-19. I suppose we're not able to be out on farm doing uh, open days and discussion groups, etc. So we're uh, moving to a virtual scenario. So we want to address topics that are relevant to you on the ground and if you would like to know more about different um, topics in particular please feel free to email your suggestions to either abigail ryan or myself uh, abigail.ryan at chagas.ie or stuart.childs at chagas.ie we'd love to hear from you what you want to know about rather than us trying to think what's appropriate for you to be delivered be delivered to you so today we've we've tried to preempt what might be um topical at the moment so uh, we have Patrick Forrestal based in Johnstown Castle who's going to talk about protected urea. We've spoken a good bit about protected urea in the early part of the year, um, but it really comes to the fore from the point of view of replacing can uh, during the summer season. So Patrick is going to talk to you about that. Um, and there's a question and answers uh, session available to you. So you can type in your questions and we'll put them to Patrick afterwards. So a brief presentation from Patrick and then um, we'll have questions and answers after that. And then we've Emer Kennedy talking about calf management at the moment um, and how they've transitioned from weaning to grass-based uh, situation for the calves here in Moor Park at the moment. So I'll, I'll hand over to Patrick and uh, let him start his presentation. And then, as I said, feel free to come in with the questions on the Q&A uh, and we'll put them to Patrick for you. So thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so this morning we're going to talk on protected urea. So it's a short slot here with a short, if you like, whistle-stop tour um, presentation, followed by some questions and answers before we move on to Emer. Um, so we're going to run through a little what, why, where, when and how and try and answer some uh, topical questions on this area. So just first off at a basic level, what is protected urea? So as you can see in this shovel here uh, to the right, ordinary urea, which you've been uh, using for many years. Um, and protected urea is simply this urea fertilizer made safe from its main problem, which is ammonia gas loss, which is some of that nitrogen that you spread. Um, and this is done using a thing called a urease inhibitor. And this can either be uh, dressed onto the surface of the urea granule or incorporated into the melt. So when you go out and spread urea, as you've done for many years, um, this rapidly goes through a process known as hydrolysis, converting across to ammonium. That's half of what's in a bag of can. And that's all well and good, but because of this urease enzyme in soil, that process happens very quickly, which causes ammonia gas to be lost. So how does the protection work? You can see here in this little uh, pictogram, uh, the urease enzyme, which is abundant in soil, it latches onto the urea, causes that process to happen quickly, uh, and in so doing, the loss. When the urease inhibitor is present, that blocks some of the urease enzymes. You can see the blue going into the active site there of the urease enzyme, and in, do in so doing, makes the urea uh, safe from ammonia loss. So why are we interested in protected urea now in particular? Well, I think many of you will be aware that there's pressure there for agriculture to reduce emissions, 
and being exporters of premium green food products, we need to show progress towards reduced emissions. And being real about it, farmers need practical tools that they can implement on their farm. Um, and protected urea is such a practical tool. And indeed, it's the largest single tool that's on the table at the moment for reducing emissions on farms. And from your own perspective, we know and are confident that it grows top yields. We know this because we've measured it in cutting trials and currently uh, there's also grazing trials running. Anya Murray is running uh, grazing trials at Moor Park, Clonakilty and Valley Hayes. Um, we've been using it here on the uh, Chagas uh, dairy farm here at Johnstown Castle for the last five years. And indeed, we have a long-term site where the same plots are receiving protected urea um, over many years. And we've published work from this. So we're confident in that. Um, also, it costs less than can at the moment, so it ticks that cost box for a farmer. We know that it reduces greenhouse gas emissions, and we know this because we've taken tens of thousands of measurements from different fertilizers to establish this, and we've also published that work. Same story with ammonia and published that work. And because of this, we can get credit for reduced emissions if you use it on your farm. So it's a simple, easy win for us. So where to use it on your farm and when to use it? So the place for protected urea is really in the straight nitrogen or the N plus S slots that you, in the fertilizer program that you develop with your advisor. And when can you use it? So you can use it uh, during the spring as a substitute for urea. You can also use it in the summer as a substitute for calcium ammonium nitrate. And it's safe to spread in the summer. And that's what the protection is for. You can also use it, of course, in the early autumn up to the cutoff date for spreading. But you don't need to use it everywhere or all the time, so don't get too stressed about that. Think about it in the straight nitrogen slots. If you need P and K, you can use a standard compound, for example, 18612 or other high PK uh, compounds. If you wanted to free up some slots for um, more straight nitrogen slots for protected urea in your program, you could look at using a little bit more 18612, for instance, and then using less 27.25, for example. And this would free up more straight nitrogen slots. And how are you going to actually achieve this out on your farm? What products are you going to use? Well, there's plenty of options. All the fertilizer companies uh, have products. There's 18 options uh, from six fertilizer companies on the Chagas list. Um, so, you have a list to refer to here, and we'll keep that updated um, on uh, the Soil Fertility website. So you've got a list uh, to reference there. If you can't get what you're asking, I'm sure there's someone on the end of the phone that'll be happy to have your business. There's a whole range of products available there. So to refresh, uh, protected urea, it is uh, growing those top, top yields. It's matching calcium ammonium nitrate. We're not saying it's going to necessarily increase your yields, but something that um, in my research program here at Johnson Castle, we're looking into in more depth is uh, sulfur. So you can see here a strong response to sulfur. So for some soils, particularly those that are uh, sandy um, or light textured, th those can respond quite strongly to sulfur. And protected urea is also in the mix here. There are six options available um, with sulfur. So going on into this uh, time when sulfur demand and nitrogen demand is increasing, um, just and have, a, have some attention uh, to sulfur on your farm, uh, particularly if you've got uh, lighter soils. Um, on heavy soils, 
some soils responding, some uh, not. So it's something that you need to explore for, for your own particular soils. The evidence is also pointed to that in most cases, uh, silage swards are responding uh, to sulfur. So 15 to 20 kilograms of sulfur, something to think about for um, your second cut silage uh, coming up after a harvest of the first cut. So at this point, I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, I'll leave you with a summary and I'll turn it over to Stuart for the uh, questions and answers time. Okay, so uh, thank you, Patrick. So um, we're just while we're waiting for some questions to come in, I'm just going to put one to you um, in relation to the use of protected urea. Now, we've, okay, we've rained today now, but we've been kind of having a dry spell all along. If people were using urea in the past, they would have probably moved towards using can in dry weather in particular, and obviously as a summer fertilizer. Is there any issue with using protected urea either during a prolonged dry spell, or we'll say, how do you um, knock it on the head in relation to that, even though it's protected urea, even, or even though it's urea based um, during the summer, why is it okay, or how is it working basically? Yeah, thanks for the questions, Stuart. So, you know, this is a question that comes up regularly. You know, is it really safe in, in the summer? Um, you know, we have this experience with urea where we just have to be careful with it in those uh, drier conditions. Well, the, the job that the protection does, that urease inhibitor does, is to make the urea safe during those dry conditions. That's what it's for. That's really, that's really what it's for. Um, so you can use it in, in the summer and spread it as you would uh, calcium ammonium nitrate. And I suppose that's one of the real nice aspects of protected urea is that you know, simply with a reset of your cal spreader calibration to spread a urea product, you can go straight in and substitute it uh, for something like uh, calcium ammonium nitrate. Now, if there's an extremely prolonged uh, dry spell like those that we saw in uh, 2018, um, you may not uh, see a response, but that's down to uh, a lack of water rather than loss of nitrogen. And um, so, in our typical conditions, you can just go ahead and spread it as you would calcium ammonium nitrate. If water is the limiting factor, um, then I think you should um, just be careful regarding spreading any nitrogen fertilizer. Um, okay. Um, so we have a couple of questions after coming in on the Q&A there. So uh, Liam Quinn is asking, how long do you leave between applying compound fertilizer containing phosphorus and protected urea? Uh, th there's no there's no problem there um, if you go out and spread a compound fertilizer containing phosphorus you can come immediately back and spread protected urea um, if you choose to do so say for instance if you were um, applying nitrogen for silage or something where where you needed uh, more nitrogen than the compound could deliver or you were using um, 07 so if you were using 0730 or something or not 1020 yeah. maybe you could you could apply straight away yeah, exactly. Or using 10, 10, 20 and then needed to top up with more nitrogen. And um, that's okay. not a problem. Okay, very good. Um, there's a question then from Alan Hops in relation to human health issues. Uh, it's been topical, I suppose, in, in the media at the start of the year in particular. So um, is there a health issue with using it? Um, no, not at, at the rate that it's onto the fertilizer because of course this is not the neat product it's it's um, very much diluted down when it's put onto the fertilizer and uh, nevertheless you should follow the manufacturer uh, guidelines around handling uh, safe handling of protected urea but many of those handling guidelines also apply 
to the fertilizers that you've been handling and using for many years. Very good. Um, and just then, another question in relation to bare ground. Can it be applied onto bare ground for silage for second cut? So can it go out onto white stubble basically after first cut? Yes, it's a good question. Um, again, this is for, this is what it's for. That bare ground after, uh, or after say your first cut silage stubble, um, the fertilizer granule is going to be very much exposed. There's no protection from wind, no protection from sun. And this is where the protection comes in. And that's what you're paying for, is to give you protection when it's applied at that time. Um, so yes, but of course with the proviso that if you know the forecast is for um, an ongoing drought, I wouldn't be necessarily rushing out uh, to spread it. But yes, you can apply it uh, to the bare ground. And that's what the protection is there for is to make it safe during that period. Okay, very good. Um, Donica Ryan is asking then, with protected urea, you can't use P as it breaks, sorry, it jumped there now, as it breaks down the inhibitor, but is there a fertilizer compound that has got past this problem? Um, so this is something so is, that- Is there a protected urea product out there that can have phosphorus contained in it, I suppose? Yeah, so, so the, there is an issue there with the stability of the urease and inhibitors. Um, when they're mixed uh, with, with phosphorus in that it, it degrades it. Um, now, I know that um, at BASF, for instance, um, are working towards a solution um, on this side, um, but to the best of my knowledge, that isn't uh, developed fully enough and implemented um, at this point. One solution in other markets uh, that they have uh, looked at is, for instance, where they can dress the urease inhibitor blend it, put it in a fertilizer spreader and spread it immediately um, to get around it. But this is not the typical, um, typically this is not practical for us uh, here in our market. Um, so I'd go back to my point in the slide. We have a list there of options. This is primarily in the straight nitrogen or N plus S slots that you can look at using it. There is no pressure for us to use it in the compound side of things, at least at present. So I don't think there's any need to get out ahead of, you know, what's technically um, uh, resolved at this point in time. Okay. So a person who doesn't wish to be identified has asked a couple of questions here. The first one being, does protected urea work as soon as it's applied? Um, yes. Okay. So, uh, so this relates to the availability of the nitrogen forms. Uh, so plants take up uh, nitrate, I think, most people listening um, are pretty well versed and schooled uh, in this. But plants also take up ammonium. Just how they handle it uh, physiologically within the plant is somewhat different. And ammonium is the first breakdown step of protected urea. So when you apply the protected urea, as I showed you in the graph, the urea starts to convert over to ammonium, which is plant available. Um, they, it just doesn't all rush out the gates and try and get across and in the process lose, lose ammonia. And if you think about a grass growth response, this is going to provide enough, enough um, nitrogen to the crop uh, for it to grow. Plants will also take up uh, urea in small quantities, but they tend not to, uh, particularly in intensive systems where usually there's enough um, nitrate and ammonium present for them to take up and also because urea 
converts across to ammonium and nitrate um, relatively quickly um, in our systems, particularly where we have, um, I suppose, moist temperate grasslands. Um, and in the research trials that we've run, run here, um, we've applied um, protected urea versus CAN in all sorts of conditions, and we don't see a significant yield difference between them. And we've been doing this for multiple years. Okay, perfect, Patrick. So um, there's a few other questions there, but we might come back to them after. We're just going to move over to Emer. Uh, so Emer um, is going to talk to us about how they've weaned the calves here in Moorpark and what uh, position they're in at the moment and how they plan to operate the calf system for the, the rest of the year in order to hit the targets uh, to have heifers calving down at the right age. So we'll hand over to you there, Emer. Morning. Uh, okay, so um, can you see the presentation? Yeah, perfect. Okay, perfect. Um, which is it? Okay, so we're going to talk about weaning and calf management um, today. So basically, when we talk about um, replacement heifers, what we want is to make sure that we get the heifers to the target weight at the appropriate time, we get them calving down and entering the herd as soon as possible so that we're maximizing their production potential and our return on investment. So if we look at some of the recent ICBF statistics over the last three years, what we've seen is that 68 to 70% of heifers are calving within 22 to 26 months of age. Now the target here is 100%. So what that's telling us is that clearly there is a lot of room for improvement. If we then take it that it costs 1,545 euro to rear a replacement heifer, you know, it's a substantial amount of money and it's taking 1.63 lactations to recoup that investment. So it's important that we do a really good job on it. And the way that we can monitor our progress with our heifers and keep them on track is by looking at their weights and by having target weights. So the next thing in relation to our calves, the next target weight that we need to keep in mind is at six months. So roughly around August, the heifers need to be 30% of their mature live weight at that stage. So for example, for a 550 kilo um, mature weight of a cow, that calf needs to be 165 kilos at six months of age or in August, as we were saying. So I guess if we, if we start now and we think a lot of calves, some may have been weaned or they're on the point of weaning. Um, and when we talk about weaning, there's basically two options that are available to us. We can either wean the calves gradually or we can wean them abruptly. Now, Ideally, abrupt weaning should be avoided um, at all costs because what happens is weight gain is reduced and that's due to a low concentrate intake by the calves and also um, the calves lose weight in that early post weaning period. So, you know, you spent all this money buying milk replacer and feeding the calves a lot of milk and essentially you were then on doing your good work by weaning them abruptly because they lose um, a good bit of weight in that early post weaning period. The best thing to do is to wean the calves gradually. So when we talk about gradual weaning, what we're saying is weaning them over the space of seven to 10 days. Um, this will promote higher concentrate intake. It will also allow higher weight gains, less of a post weaning check, and also it's less distressing for the calf. So how are you going to actually do this? Well, there's a couple of ways to, to wean the calf gradually. Firstly, you can move from twice a day feeding to once a day feeding or you can reduce the volume of milk per feed. However, it should be noted that calves need to be eating at least a kilo of concentrate before they are weaned. So when should you wean them? Well, 
you know, this, this depends. It can be on age, weight, the size of the calf, or the amount of concentrate that they're, they're taking in. So from recent work that um, we've done to John Barry's survey, we have found that weaning calves by age is the most common in Ireland. So about 55% of calves are weaned by age. The next most common option then is weaning by weight. So 20% of farmers are weaning their calves based on actually um, physically weighing them. We do have a new study um, at Chagas Moor Park that's part of Hazel Costigan's PhD and it's in its third year now. So here Hazel is looking at weaning calves at either eight weeks or 12 weeks and then post weaning the calves are divided up and they're offered one of two um, post weaning feeding levels, so either a high or a low level. So this is going to give us a lot of information um, we, we'll be, because this we'll be able to look at say the effects of weaning um, by age and also by weight and we'll see what outcomes they have. The very preliminary results from this work show that post-weaning nutrition is having a greater effect than, than pre-weaning nutrition. However, it should be noted that there is um, a lot of recent research that shows that high levels of milk feeding during the early um, life of the calf, so within the first few weeks, has an effect on the amount of milk that that calf produces when she reaches the lactating herd. So because of this, we need to complete the study and also look at the, the heifer's milk production. So the first heifers uh, have calved down this spring and they're, they're milking currently. So hopefully by this time next year, we will have a much better idea um, of, of what's actually happening. So we, we have um, made a video, unfortunately we can't show it today, but it is available on the Chagas website. And there you will get an update um, of the calves that, that are um, that are currently in Moorpark. Um, um, we weighed those calves um, a week ago on Wednesday and at that stage they were 78 kilos. Now this year um, as part of Alison Sinnott's PhD we did something a little bit different with the calves. Normally we wean the calves by weight um, but this year because of the study that was there which was a housing comparison um, we had calves in individual hutches and group hutches and because they were in individual hutches EU directive states that they must be weaned at eight weeks of age. So because of that, we took the decision to wean all the calves at eight weeks of age this year. So as I say, this year, on average, the calves were 78 kilos, um, whereas this time last year, when they were weaned on weight, they were on average 100 kilos um, of weight. So there's a little bit of catching up left to do. But I just want to take you through an example based on, on the Moorpark calves that we weighed. So we have 75 heifer calves. All of them are weaned at this stage. And within it, there's 46 Holstein Frisians and 29 Jersey Crosses. Now, for this example, I'm just going to focus on the Holstein Frisian heifers um, and look at trying to achieve that target of 30% of their mature weight at six months of age. So again, just focusing on the Holstein Frisians, their date of birth on average was the 3rd of February. So the first one was born the 22nd of January and the last one was born the 18th of February. So a nice tight um, calving spread there with, with the heifers. The birth weight of the heifers, my screen is a little bit um, blocked there, but I think it's 37 kilos um, of the Holstein Frisian heifers. And their current weight, this is of the Holstein Frisians again, is 90 kilos on the 29th of April, which was last Wednesday week. So the weight gain that those calves have had from birth to present has been 0.62 of a kilo per day, which is quite good. Now, if they had stayed on milk for a little bit longer, that weight gain probably would have been up about 0.7 of a kilo a day. 
The mature weight of our herd um, here of the Holstein Frisians is 560 kilos. Now we got this mature weight by weighing um, our Holstein Frisian animals in May, June, when there's no effect of, of pregnancy. Um, and that gives us the mature weight of the animals. So basically what you're looking for is animals that are representative of the future of what your herd, so where you want your, your herd to be. So as I say, 560 kilos, the mature weight of our Holstein Frisians here. So if we calculate the target weight um, that we want our heifers to achieve at six months of age, which is on the 4th of August, we're looking at 168 kilos. So that means between now and then, the heifers need to put on 78 kilos, or basically they need to have a weight gain of 0.8 of a kilo a day between, between now and then um, to make sure that they achieve that target at 30% of their mature weight at six months of age. So how are we going to do this? Um, well, it's going to be achieved by regular weighing. So, um, you know, it, same as your grass, you can't manage what you don't measure. So if we don't weigh the calves regularly, we don't know what weight they are because it's very hard to guess, guess visually. Um, so once we know their weights, we can take um, action. We will run two groups of heifers um, throughout the grazing season. Um, so the heifers are basically divided into groups based on their weight. And these groups are are dynamic. So every time we weigh, we set in place a minimum weight threshold and calves that are above that go into the larger group and calves that are below it, so the lighter calves, are going into a smaller group of calves. So here they're given preferential treatment, so they're, they're given um, higher quality grass, they might be given more concentrate if needed, um, but the big thing is that there's a lesser number of calves per group. So a smaller, smaller group size, so there's less competition and the calves have a greater chance then to thrive and grow. And often it happens that when we weigh the, at the next weighing, a lot of those calves can graduate um, to, the, to the older group um, or the, the bigger group, sorry. And again, lighter calves in that bigger group will come back um, to the smaller group again. As with the cows, if you don't give high quality grass to your cows, they won't perform the same as with the calves. You need to be consistent and give high quality grass to the calves and offer fresh grass regularly. So it's not really acceptable to pick a paddock and just put your calves in there if there's a heavy cover and leave them in there for a couple of weeks and just let, let them graze out. They're not going to thrive properly in, under this type of conditions. Concentrate um, should be used for nestery, you know, again, depending on grass supply or the stocking rate and also depending on the, the, the weight gain of the calves. And the big thing then is also to monitor um, the worm burden and the, the vaccinations. So, for example, um, after the calves are out for eight weeks here, we will take faecal samples um, from them and we will get those uh, tested for egg counts and we will base our dosing um, on this. Um, and also, you know, vaccinations. At this stage, the calves have had two clostridial um, vaccines. They have, they will get an IBR vaccine at six months of age to fall in with the, the herd vaccination program for IBR. And they've also had two doses for coccidiosis, um, one when they were dehorned and the other two weeks um, post weaning. So the take home messages from today. Firstly, when you're weaning calves, it is extremely important to do it gradually. So that means weaning the calves over seven to 10 days by cutting down the milk, be it through once a day feeding or offering a, a lower volume. The next thing is to ensure that they are eating at least a kilo of concentrate before weaning, because again, this is going to minimize the post weaning check and make sure that their, their, their guts have adapted to the new feed and they will continue to thrive once milk is, is removed from the diet. And finally, 
to identify um, the target weight for your calves at six months of age, so August time, and develop a plan around that to ensure that you're going to get there. Okay, thanks, Stuart. Thanks, Eamor. So um, just a question in from Thomas Duffy. What was the maximum feeding rate of milk or milk replacer in the trials that you're talking about there this year? Uh, so this year, um, because we had a shorter window, they actually went up to eight, eight litres of milk. Um, uh, but normally it's six, it's six litres. So it was just for that. So we'd be recommending six litres per calf per day. So and I suppose the... Yeah, so does that mean basically they consume the same level of milk replacer just in a shorter space of time? No, they were actually, it was about the courses of a bag less. Okay, okay. Um, so there was also a question then in relation to transitioning calves from the shed to the field. What way do you do that here? Um, so basically what we will do is we'll, because the calves, we have an all-in, all-out system. So basically, um, you know, the calves are in a group and they stay there for for, for the duration of, of milk feeding. So whatever calves need to be weaned, we take them out and we put them into a group so they can familiarize themselves with each other um, and they stay there for maybe a couple of days and then we'll, we'll put them out to, to, to grass, maybe into a sheltered paddock and a paddock that's very well fenced, um, you know, so they can get used to, to being outside and have a good run around and not break out. Okay, so um, a question that we've come across a good bit in the advisory side of the house is um, issues around summer scour syndrome. Have you had any issues with that? We haven't had um, issues with summer scour syndrome and talking to, you know, vets and to um, the department, the regional vet labs and that, um, some of it would seem to be based around, you know, maybe adjusting the calves to to a diet. So making sure that concentrate is put in into um, the diet from the first week of age so that you're adapting the calves, the calves rumen um, and also weaning them them correctly so that that they're they're well set up and then making sure that, you know, there's enough fiber in the diet. So that's why, um, you know, we would tend to offer the calves covers of 13, 1400 kilos. We tend not to go for, you know, the thousand um, kilo covers because that's quite leafy and there's not really that much fiber in it. So, and again, we don't, we don't implement a leader follower system. Either the calves have to graze um, like independently. So they're getting the swords down to four centimeters. So they're getting enough fiber um, into the diet. And I think like, you know, there, there are some of the reasons why we're not seeing it here. Okay, very good. So Matthew Welch is just asking there, um, do you compare different milk replacers and what effect does crude protein of milk replacer have on the calves? So we have done an experiment before where we've looked at 20% crude protein versus 26% um, crude protein. Um, and we have found that the 26% crude protein, um, you know, that the calves grew um, a lot faster on that. And that kind of... Um, you know, that's in line with, with previous re international research as well, that the higher crude protein level, it tends to put frame on the animals. They mightn't look as, um, you know, as, as, as fleshy or that as, um, as other animals, but they've grown in frame um, and they do tend to do better on the higher crude protein. Okay. Um, so Aidan Lawless is just asking, um, in terms of the average weight at eight weeks uh, being 78 kilos, what was the range and uh, what weight were the lightest calves being weaned at? So the light, when they were weaned, the lightest calves um, were about 65 kilos. Um, they're weaned a few weeks now. So they, they were about uh, 70 and um, 85, 86 was, was the, the average. So they're, they're pretty, pretty consistent, the, the calves, yeah, tight bunch. Very good. And then just finally, um, do you feed 
whole milk or milk replacer and how our calves fed teeth or computerized calf feeder. So I think we have a combination of everything going on, haven't we? So, um, well, we, we, we feed, they're fed, so if it takes you, they're fed colostrum um, for the fir first feed and then they're fed transition milk for, for five feeds after that. And then they move on to milk replacer and they stay, they stay on milk replacer. Um, then, um, so the, the other question was how it's fed. So we have automatic um, milk feeders, but this as part of Alison Sinnott's PhD, um, she's been comparing manual feeders and automatic um, feeders and looking at the labor involved around the, around the two of those. Um, so yeah. Okay, an interesting one here. So um, is there any potential for an epigenic effect, epigenetic sorry, effect from accelerated growth in the milk feeding phase? Yeah, there is there is some work that would say that there is um, epigenetic uh, effects with with the accelerated growth. We haven't looked at it ourselves, but um, hopefully in time it'll be one of the plans. Okay, so um, we're pretty much out of time there. So um, we'll try to respond to any questions maybe that have been asked there that we haven't gotten around to answering. And again, I'd just like to highlight that we would like people to. Um, give us their ideas of what you would like to see covered during the course of the present of the webinar series over the next couple of weeks. And also that all the presentations and so forth will be available on the Chagas website um, probably this evening or tomorrow. So I'd just like to thank Emer and Patrick for their presentations. Uh, thank you all for joining us and hope that you can join us again next Thursday at the same time, half 10 to 11 o'clock. Thanks very much. That's all for this week's Let's Talk Dairy webinar series. And don't forget to look out for more bonus episodes each week. I'll be back with our usual Dairy Edge interviews and advice, so do listen in then. I'm Emma-Louise Coffey, and thanks for listening.